And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. I am Maggie. And today we are reading Kindred by Octavia Butler because I couldn't get our hands, my hands, my hands on the book that we're supposed to be reading. And I happen to be reading Kindred by Octavia Butler because there is a show on Hulu that you all should watch, even though I have not yet, so it doesn't get canceled. And I wanted to be able to watch the show, so I had to read the book first. Okay, so... Miss Maggie, Mix Maggie, um, how are you today, and and how are you feeling about Kindred? I know it's been a while since you had thought about this book before, you know, we touched base about it. Oh, it's Friday, so, you know, I'm pretty good. I mean, the Kindred was the book that made me fall in love with Octavia Butler. It was the first one that I read by her, and it absolutely blew me away, and it really stuck with me. It's just such a masterful book and such a masterful metaphor about generational trauma and the ways in which that history and time has not healed the wounds of slavery in the United States. And some of the images in that book have really stuck with me. I was talking to Harmony earlier while she read one of the last scenes in the book where Dana comes back and her arm gets crushed in the house because that's where Rufus was grabbing her when she left. And Harmony was like, what? What is going on? And I was like, yeah, that scene has been burned into my brain since I read it. It's really just one of those books that I feel like you read and it just, I don't know. For me, it just marinated. And as much as I haven't read it super recently and I had to refresh for this episode because as Harmony mentioned, we had to pivot kind of last minute. I also didn't have to refresh that much because it was one of those reads that just really stuck to my bones, I think. But this is your first time reading it. So what were your impressions? My first experience with Octavia Butler, as longtime listeners will know, was the Exnogenesis series or Lilith's Brood, if it's all bound into one book. And I think every year since we've read that, I think I've read another Octavia Butler book and have kind of had this big life-changing effect. And when I when I picked up Kindred... I was a little bit surprised because the writing style is very different than these other books. And I wasn't sure at first if it was going to have this big effect for me. I think simply because Octavia Butler often writes about almost kind of the fantastical in that she's writing about the future and what could be in these really big ideas about things that we have not yet imagined. And even in Wild Seed, which was the other book I read by her, even though it wasn't the future, it was still fantastical. And the whole the whole thing, it feels a little bit detached from our world and, and very much like we're imagining what could be. So with Kindred, I wasn't sure that was going to be the case because we're dealing with history and this is a period in history that we have seen already. And I think 
as I was reading this book, I realized that I personally really tend to, I don't consume media about this period, about pre-Civil War era antebellum America, because it's disturbing and there's just so many feelings about it. And I think reading this, I was struck by how different Butler's depiction of this America was than other media depictions I've seen of it because it worked so hard to humanize everybody. And then I think, because I, I just finished the book this afternoon, I think my other big impression is this concept of humanity that I think is, I think is, it feels more Butler to me because some of the ideas that come out of her depiction of humanity feel big and radical and life-changing in the same ways that her other works have have felt to me. I don't know if that's at all coherent. Am I making sense? You are making sense. I think the two things that you said really stuck with me. The first is that you're absolutely right. This is very much a departure for Butler because it is historical. And as much as time travel is a part of the book, it's very, very, it's a very small part of the book. And in a lot of Butler's works, the science fiction and fantasy aspects of it play much larger roles. This is very much a novel that is grounded in reality and grounded in historical reality. And something else that you said that really struck me as well is that this is obviously an overgeneralization, but I've read so many books that take place in the Deep South in the past, but so many of them and so much, I think, literature, movies that talk about slavery and depict slavery in the U.S. happen around the Civil War. And I think it's because there's an aspect of hope in the Civil War period, because we all know from history class that slavery ended in many ways. Obviously, the history itself is much more complicated. There were so many slaves who weren't actually enslaved people who weren't actually given their freedom when they were supposed to be. And then the Jim Crow laws made freedom much more complicated than it should be, shall we say, the understatement of the century. But, you know, there's that era of hope in that time period because you know what's coming, right? It's terrible now, but we know that at some point in the narrative, freedom is coming. And in this book, which takes place in the early 1800s, 60-ish years before the Civil War happens, I think that Butler is able to place some of that hope elsewhere in the novel, because as you mentioned, she does work so hard to humanize all of the characters, even the characters who are really terrible, even the characters who you want to hate with every fiber of your being, she makes it impossible to actually hate them, I think. And she does that for a very purposeful reason. And I think it's to show that any one of us who aren't Black could have been people like Rufus in the past, because we're all human. But I think that there's also hope because I think that part of the point of Rufus's character is that positive experiences that go against the brainwashing mold of stereotypes in your society can start to change one's mind. And the tragedy of Rufus is that he doesn't actually ever quite get there. He gets so close and then he continues to succumb to... I don't want to use the word brainwashing, but he succumbs to societal expectations of, of who he's supposed to be and how he's supposed to treat other people. And I hesitate in some ways to say the tragedy of Rufus because I, he tortures other characters in the book very viscerally, but there's just so much happening there and so much going on. And you see hope in the novel and then hope is taken away 
and then you get it back in a little bit. And it's just so human. I think that she really forces you to contend with historical realities of the past with the impact and generational trauma that those historical realities have in the 1970s when the contemporary aspect of this book takes place all the way up to today. Yeah, it was just really brilliantly done, I think. Yeah. So there are a few things I want to talk about with this book, and maybe I should pull up the syllabus questions, but before we get there, I want to talk to you a little bit about Butler's choice to make Kevin a white man, because we have two... We have, we have a few white characters in this novel, but we have these two really important men who are linked to Dana, our main character, and one is her ancestor, Maggie, has already mentioned, Rufus, and the other is her husband, Kevin, and she loves both of these men because she meets Rufus as a child and her relationship to him is saving him, even though he is the child of a slave owner. And also, I think something that I thought, at least, I don't know if Butler was explicitly putting it there, but throughout this novel, we see we see slaves interacting with Rufus, and it's not only Dana who loves him to some capacity. There are multiple slaves who grew up with him who have learned to love him because they grew up together. And I feel like part of the radical thing for me reading this is even if somebody is awful, evil, even if somebody is sick and does these horrible, awful things, it's really hard when you know a person to completely hate them, which I think is why... Not that this is at all related to slavery, because slavery is never a choice. But like, I think that's why a lot of us, that's why we see so many people end up in abusive situations, but hesitant to get out in part because they know this person are, and are linked to them in some way, because people are human. It's really hard once you know somebody to not see that humanity. And so then to have that contrasted so starkly with the realities of slavery where you're literally dehumanizing someone is just, wow. But I digress because I need to go back. What was I talking about? That's right. Kevin and Rufus. So yeah, it was just a very interesting choice to make Dana in the 1970s when interracial relationships are still pretty taboo, married to a white man who then actually has to go back to this slavery period with her and experience it. I just, I, I think I need help grappling with that choice <laughs> and what that does for the text and also how that contributes to Butler's larger message. I think for me, the role that Kevin played in the novel, specifically being a white person, is that no matter if you are not Black, no matter how close you are to a Black person, no matter how much you love a Black person, you can never truly understand what it's like to be a Black person. And I feel like that sounds like a really oversimplified take, but I think that the the fact that he is her husband, you know, they are, they're so close. There's ostensibly very few people he loves more than her in the entire world. When he's taken back to the South, and especially when he's he ends up getting left there by accident for a really long period of time. Butler, I think, is able to show that society has a way of kind of warping your mind and sort of changing your perspective because Kevin doesn't come back to the 1970s the same man he was when he left. He has very different ideals and he doesn't fit in in the antebellum self by any means because he doesn't agree with what's happening. 
but he also comes back to the 1970s and he doesn't quite fit there either. His progressive ideals, for lack of a better term, have kind of been eroded by this time in the South, have been eroded and desensitized by the dehumanizing that he was surrounded by. I think he was there for like five years or something like that that time that he was spent there right and this is despite being in love with and married to a black woman so I think for me that was the point of Kevin's character to show that undoing the work of racism is constant that society and being constantly surrounded by dehumanization of others is really really powerful and that you have to be extraordinarily vigilant as a non-black person to be constantly unpacking the messaging that society is giving you about black people in general and i think that for me that was the role of kevin's character was to kind of illustrate all of those things in one of the most intensive ways possible and that i think is why it's so important that he's white and i think one of the most powerful conversations that they have when they both return to the 1970s that illustrates all of this is that for some ungodly reason kevin is jealous of data's relationship with rufus even though rufus is literally related to her and that's really one of those key points where you see the way in which that Kevin's mind has been so warped by this time. But also then you start to question how much was it warping and how much has this just uncovered prejudice that has been within him all along and that he's been either fighting or hiding this entire time. So for me, I think that that was the role of Kevin's character and why it was really important that Dana was in an, an interracial marriage at the time that the time traveling started. Thank you for talking about that, because there were there were a couple of things here that really struck me as you were talking, because you mentioned it. This idea of Kevin being less progressive when he comes back. I don't think I caught that at all while reading, but when you mentioned it, I did think about how he reacted to Dana and got jealous over Rufus. And I think... When we were reading, when I was reading, there were some hints of him being this a little bit before, maybe a little bit misogynistic. He expected her to be, do his secretary work, for, for instance. He expected her to do his typing for him. But it's really stark when he comes back because, one, he has, he has PTSD from this time period. And to go off into that tangent a little bit, I think this book really painted the metaphor of slavery being a sickness into my brain, even though it doesn't spe specifically talk about that, because we see we see people become sick under these conditions. We see it through Dana and Kevin. And for me, viewing the white men in this book particularly, and, and frankly, even Margaret Whalen, who is Rufus's mother, all of these white characters end up becoming sick and for the most part, dying young, maybe, and maybe that's the time period. But to me, it seems that Rufus, Rufus's descent into turning into his father really shows a period of him growing sickly. And not, I guess not to be, not to be ableist about it, because I don't think that, I don't think it's simply just his physical era, but yeah, his personality, it feels... It feels like something is off, like he is unwell, even as he is doing these evil things. Even though he's proving that it's a choice time and time again. And so we kind of see that too with Kevin when he comes back. He's five years older and he doesn't know how to drive again. He is suffering real PTSD 
And then there's that confrontation that you mentioned where he gets jealous about Rufus. And to me, that really highlighted Dana's realization that Kevin thinks that he has ownership of her in the way that Rufus keeps coming across. Because Rufus loves various people that he owns or that his father owns. Like Dana, even though she's an officially owned, she's just assumed to be owned because she doesn't have papers. Like Alice, eventually. But that love is wrong and full of this idea of ownership. And that's really what corrupts it, is this idea that he can own another human being. So yeah, that's what I thought about as you were talking. (laughs) Well, I think that that brings up a really interesting question that this book makes me wrestle with, which is, to me, you, you, you see all of this. And then for me, the obvious conclusion is that of course, Rufus didn't love them. It's impossible to actually love somebody when the power imbalance is this big, right? There is just a sense of ownership. There is a sense of cruelty, you know? When when Rufus lies to Alice and says that he sold her children, even though he really just sent them to his aunt, it's such brutal cruelty, even though he claims that he loves Alice so much that he just must possess her, essentially. It's like, is that really love? What What is that? But then, then that also, for me makes me think okay well then there's power imbalances in literally every relationship in the entire world so then when do when is the power imbalance small enough that you can then say that something is love or something isn't love and I don't say that to condone anything that Rufus does or say that the love there was good or pure or anything but just it's really complicated I think she makes it so complicated because you see the humanity in Rufus and you see what he says about about love And then you see the ways in which all of his actions so directly go against what we think of as being a healthy, loving relationship today. And it's like, how can all of these things be true at the same time? And I think you're right. And it's that slavery is a sickness. And the idea that you can own and possess somebody is an illness. And I think that this is one of the ways where I don't, This is like one of the conversations where it talks about the fact that the patriarchy harms men too. White supremacy also harms white people. And I think that that was a large part of the point of Rufus's character and this idea of the the more he becomes like his father, the more it looks like a descent into madness. This is the way in which white supremacy is harming Rufus, but then contextualized in the fact that the harm that is being done to Rufus is making him harm others tenfold, twentyfold, thirtyfold, you know? And how does love play into all of that? Well, I don't really know from the outside, but it really, that aspect of this book made me think so in depth about power imbalances in my own life, power imbalances in, in every way in the contemporary world. And it's just how, the the answer isn't simple. To me, I think that it just it comes back to the fact that it's too simple to say that the power imbalance is so big that it wasn't love. Because where do you draw the line? And how do you get into Rufus's head and know or not know that, you know? Yeah. This book, even though it ended with Rufus being awful, <laughs> even though it ended with Rufus leaving his mark and proving to not truly be a good person, I guess, did a really good job of showing... Kind of what you said at the beginning, how how the effects of being in contact with different types of people and people who don't prove the stereotypes of you. I, I mean, I don't know. Rufus, I, <laughs> let me start again. 
it does a really good job of showing how Dana's Dana's presence affected Rufus's life simply because she was kind to him and because she brought back ideas from the 1970s, brought back these future ideas, saw a child, helped him, refused to think of any white person as master. These were all radical and planted seeds in a young Rufus, even though he chose to make these horrible decisions and be cruel to people. And the thing is that the book was clear about Rufus's cruelty and how he shouldn't be heralded as a, a hero while also being clear about the fact that he was better than his father and that he made it possible for Dana to live via his rape, which isn't okay, but this is a part of the messiness. This is a part of the the wonderful idea of having somebody go back to see their ancestor during this time and literally helping their ancestor go through life. He was better than his father, and he also contributed to freeing his children, even though they might not have remained free afterwards. He made he made some better decisions, and Dana did have an effect on his life. And that, even though it didn't directly end slavery, that was one of the that was that was better. It, it left a better effect on the world, I guess, even though it was small. I don't know. But it is all, it's a really cruel, horrible world that is depicted here at the same time. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to give you back the money. Well, I think that it goes back to what you were saying about Rufus in some ways and the fact that people loved him. Rufus knew the people around him and even though he was trained to think of them as being less than human and even though he ultimately made the active choice to believe in that Dana and Alice and all of the other enslaved people on the plantation made him making that choice hard because he knew them as people and Dana specifically pushed back against that mentality right Dana was able to not just humanize herself because of the fact that she was coming from this contemporary moment, but also humanize others in Rufus's eyes. And I think that that is what makes his ultimate choices and his descent into becoming his father or more like his father. Because you're right, the book is also clear that he never reaches quite that same level of cruelty for what good it does the people who are harmed by him, you know, that all of that has an impact on Rufus. And I think that I was thinking about this before we were starting the episode, that impact goes both ways. I think that that's part of the reason why it's so important that the time travel aspect of this novel happens multiple times in bursts, even though arguably 90% 90, 90 of the novel happens in the early 1800s. I think there's an argument that could be made that Octavia Butler could have told a very similar story where time travel happened once at the beginning and the character was stuck with or without her husband the entire time. But the reason that it's so valuable that it happens continuously, that it happened and it happens in spurts where she's not in the 1970s for very long, even though she's in the 1800s for much longer stretches of time, 
is I think that the time travel becomes the metaphor for this generational trauma, becomes the metaphor of the impact that comes back with her, comes back with Kevin to the 1970s. And I think that that's what makes the scene at the very end where Rufus is trying to rape her and she stabs him multiple times, but he's grabbing her. And that's the moment where she comes back to the present, but her arm is severed where he's touching her. That's what makes it such a gut punch, right? It's not even it's not even the act of violence. It's not even the terror of sexual assault. It's not even the fact that she loses her arm because of this in a very freaky <laughs> body horror sort of way, the way it's described. It's that metaphor, that reality of generational trauma being put directly in your face and saying, this is the impact that slavery is still having on Black bodies in the United States today. And somehow you were all not seeing it. Somehow, somehow the, the because the horror is hidden behind the other wall of this house, you're not seeing the full picture here. You're not seeing the body horror. And I think that that's just, I don't know, it, it that complicated messiness, that back and forth of impact, the active choices of cruelty that are still being made regardless of that impact is what makes this book, I think, for me, something that's stuck with me for six years at this point since I've read it. Damn. That's a mic drop. I don't know that I, I, I mean, what do I say after that? I don't even know. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, if I could all... maybe. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, not to interrupt you if you, if you have another point to make, but I feel like we're, we're, this is a this is a story about Dana, right? And I feel like we've kind of talked around her. So I don't know if maybe we want to go back to our syllabus questions and talk a little bit about Dana and her agency in the novel. Because I feel like that, I mean, it's complicated in every book we read, but I feel like agency in this book has so much to do with what's happening because it's about slavery, but also about time travel and how that complicates things. Yes, I agree. We can talk about that. But before we do, I did have a point. It was just that, yeah, we're all suffering. I mean, unless, well, no, no, because we live in a global colonized world, a generational trauma and black people especially, and we're still failing to upturn white supremacy. And it's very horrifying and uncomfortable to sit with. And it's something I think about a lot, actually, but I don't know I have any real answers to. Okay, let's talk about the syllabus. How much agencies do our main characters have? How much agency does Dana have? Yes. I think that Dana has a surprising lack of agency compared to some of our other characters because she is literally being pulled to another place and time against her will via her white ancestor who was you know, in charge of enslaving her Black ancestor. So it feels it feels like right there we've got a huge lack of agency and a huge disparity, and then she is pulled into a century in which she is stripped of all her human rights. And despite that, she finds ways to obtain agency in simply to starting with finding a a go bag and clinging to it whenever she is pulled so that she has things like clean clothes and some modern medicine and soap. And she also gets agency for herself by befriending Rufus. And 
learning to detach herself at first from the realities of this period because she is from the 1970s and kind of using that as a cushion and a way to gain agency for herself because she is more educated than everyone white or black <laughs> that she's interacting with in this time period. So there are there are quite a few ways in which she gains agency and carves out places for herself and avoids really heavy manual labor that would have broken her body. But it, it's right away she's has a deficit, I guess. And I think that that's made even messier by the fact that later in the novel, she discovers that if she harms herself, she can take some of that agency back and she can force herself to time travel back to the 1970s. But at what fucking cost? At what fucking cost? She has to practically die. She has to slit her wrists, but she still has that out, right? So it's horrifying, but also it gives her, it gives her a sense of extra safety and extra power to know I have an out that will send me back to the 1970s if things get too horrific. And then things do get too horrific and she uses that mechanism. She she uses it successfully once and she tries to use it again. And that's when things go to hell in a handbasket with Rufus in that last scene, right? So the agency here is this constant push and pull of this sense of you would think that she would have a ginormous advantage in agency coming from the contemporary 1976 time period and watching that agency in some ways erode over time as she's in the past. But then as Harmony saying, she gains other ways of taking agency back when she's been put into this period where she's been put into this position of being forced to time travel anyways to begin with anytime Rufus is in danger, right? So it's very complicated and very messy in terms of agency. Yeah. Yeah. I also, a quick aside, I think want to talk about, this is like a very difficult book I'm realizing. <laughs> a quick aside, I want to talk a little bit about the way Butler, I think, lends dignity to the concept of suicide. And I want to talk about this in a delicate way because I don't think it at all glorifies suicide. And I am not a historian, but what little I do know of history is there is a concept of enslaved people throughout history, not just Black Americans, of people choosing to die rather than not be free. And I think that that feels empowering to me, the fact that Dana really truly considers that and does not want to die, but knows that she does not want to live if she cannot have her freedom. Yeah, I think it is difficult to talk about, and I think that the way that suicide has been talked about throughout history and throughout cultures has changed rapidly up to the 21st century. But I agree with you that I think that Butler does handle the topic with a lot of dignity and a lot of respect and a lot of lack of judgment, essentially. I think she does a really good job of not putting the 20th century idea that uh, and contemporary idea and feeling that probably many of us have when we think of suicide onto a historical time period and onto a practice that we know many did choose in a way out that many people did choose rather than live as being an enslaved person. And 
yeah, I, I, I don't know that I have any anything else to say, because like you say, I, I want to handle this delicately as well. But I, I think that Butler does a really good job integrating that into the story in a way that feels respectful and authentic for the characters who choose to to use that, because it's not just Dana who grapples with suicide throughout the novel as well. Yes. Okay, let's go back to our syllabus questions. Do Does Dana ever gain agency by exerting power or force over others? I'm going to say no, actually. She does kill a man, but I don't think that that is an act of agency as much as it is a desperate act of survival. And what it does is remove her from the situation, which I guess is a form of agency, but... It's not the act of killing, it's the fear of dying that ends up removing her, so. Yeah, yeah, I don't, exerting power in this book, I think, happens for Dana in strange ways, because again, she has basically been treated, being treated as an enslaved person while she's in the antebellum South. So her ways of exerting power look much different than other characters in other books that this question might be a little bit more appropriate to, I guess. I, I think that her shows of strength are and her shows of exerting power are in some ways like her ceaseless compassion and her ceaseless love for Rufus. And that is, I think, so much of how she gains and keep her, keeps, keeps her agency. I think that not only does she refuse to let herself be dehumanized, she refuses to dehumanize Rufus and just kind of say that he's a product of his time. She refuses to excuse him as being, you know, she holds him to the standards of being a human and that's how she exerts power over him. And that is how she's able to push change on him, even if it's ultimately too, too little, I think. That is how she's able to push him forward. But I don't know that that necessarily ends with her gaining agency so much as it does her, I don't know. I, I think it, it, it raises questions for me of how agency plays into humanity and dehumanization. Because I think it's also an act of survival, an act of keeping herself. And maybe that is agency and maybe that is her expressing agency in some ways. But I think that it's complicatedly interwoven there. And I don't know that I have all the tools to unpick it right now. I think that the, because I wrote this question back in the day, <laughs> I think that the meaning of this question is meant to be violent force or, or a violent sort of attitude. And Dana inflicts violence on herself, and she certainly has agency, but she never gains it from belittling someone else. She will stand up for herself, but yeah, she never... She never puts someone in a lower position in order to gain power, I don't believe, throughout this novel. And when she, in her version of exerting power, which isn't necessarily over others, but exerting power in a situation, it's all very subversive to Maggie's point, which is interesting and cool. And we can unpack if you want to, Maggie. Do you want to unpack that? Do you want to raise your hand? It, say yes or no. Blink once, blink Oh, wait, don't blink. I can't see you if you blink. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? I, lo I lost my train of thought because you made me laugh. Yeah, I, w I would agree. Really, the only times that Dana commits an act of violence are, as, as you said, against herself. 
which again is in some ways kind of taking back agency because it takes her back home, but in other ways it is complicated and intense and she doesn't know that that's going to work either. So her taking power back in that way is, we talked about that already. I'm not going to rehash, but also the only other times she really commits violence, as you mentioned, are basically an acts of self-defense. And so the power being exerted there isn't, again, to belittle or anything. It's just to live and it's just to survive. So again, it is subversive the way she takes power back. And it's very psychological and it's very, she has to learn, as weird as this might sound, how to play the game a little bit because she has to learn where where she's able to push back in a way that doesn't put her in physical harm's way, right? Because even when she's helping, even when she's literally saving Rufus's life because she's in a black body, she is so inherently distrusted at this time that even when she is saving a life, she is in danger of being hurt for saving that life, right? So for her, taking power back is understanding how to keep her humanity. It's understanding the places where she can push Rufus's thinking And it's also understanding how to keep herself safe. I think that her figuring out how to keep herself as much as possible from labor that would physically break her, to stay away as much as possible from abuse, I think that those are forms of power that she takes back for herself. But they happen in very messy and difficult ways, and they don't necessarily look like power on the surface of it because the whole situation she has a lack of power and she has a lack of agency and she shouldn't be in this position to begin with so she's just struggling to survive and trying to keep what parts of herself she can while she's doing that you know I hesitate to even call it power because the whole point is that she's supposed to be depowered but I also she's supposed to be depowered and being depowered are two different things and I think that the point of Dana's character is that it's really hard to actually strip somebody of their humanity. It's really, really difficult to do that, both for the person who is being dehumanized and the person who is doing the dehumanizing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So our next question is, does the plot resolve by asserting hierarchy or subverting it? I think that it, it resolves by subverting it because Dana finally kills Rufus. So I'm going to skip to the next question. It's never going to, any of these books, it's never going to resolve by by asserting hierarchy, I don't think. I think that's a silly question. All right, what can we take from this book into our own lives, Maggie? What do you think? Oh, I think that this book, what I have taken from this book, because I think that I've had enough hindsight now to kind of know how it's affected me, is that it's made me think really differently about generational trauma and how history is playing out currently in the US. It's made me believe, I I believed in reparations before, but it really, I think, reaffirmed the need for reparations, reaffirmed the fact that we need to be doing more every day to overthrow white supremacy, basically, that reparations are really necessary, I think, to overcome current power imbalances that are happening because of these historical events. And I think as well, I don't want to harp too much on Kevin's character, but his character, I think, really was an eye-opener for me that, I don't know, just the power that society can have over you and how important it is to constantly be examining oneself and examining what we believe. 
yeah, I don't know. I, I think about those things a lot following this book, which I'm sure you can tell because those were a lot of the themes that I continually brought up through this episode, but it's because those are the things that I have brought with me from reading this book. I'm trying to feel, figure out how to articulate this. I think that this book, and I haven't gotten as much time to digest it, but I did get to digest it just now with Maggie. You all witnessed my digestion. I think this book helped me identify identify the constant discomfort that comes with living in a white supremacist world, which is something I think we are reckoning with, hopefully, as a society, but I have been reckoning with more and more, and more and more, as a lot of everyone has in 2022, as we witness societal collapse and, you know, the George Floyd protests in 2020, and so yeah, we're all reckoning with it. But yeah, it's it's a it's it's uncomfortable to live in a society in which white supremacy exists, and that's because all of these power structures are at play, and it's important that we recognize them and honor and accurately depict history and learn from it and continually think about it and try to remember that everybody is human, I guess. I don't know. I mean, obviously remember that everyone's human, but I think that we think we can do that without really recognizing and grappling with the fact that all of our structures in society are built off of these really problematic, harmful things. And we are literally living in that every day by our interactions and our work and so yeah, it's just important to have anti-racist ideals and really recognize that this affects every part of our life <laughs> and try and live with that and try and move forward and continually to try and fight against that. The fact that this is what's going on and this is where we're existing in, even though things are thankfully much better than pre-Civil War era. It's a really big cliche but the deeper I get into my career as a historian, the more that I deeply believe that if history isn't making you uncomfortable or upset, you're probably not really looking at an accurate history of something. And that's not to say that there is nothing worth celebrating in human history or anything, but just the history of the world and the history of civilization is largely based on hierarchy and the subjugation and enslavement of somebody true all the way back to the ancient Greeks, to the ancient Romans, to the ancient everybody. And I think that learning to live with the, that discomfort is really important because learning to live with our own discomfort means that other people are hopefully less likely to be living in pain and less likely to be harmed for, for the structures that have come. And I think that so much of history and so much of the work that I do as a historian at the very least is about looking back to individuals who made really rough choices like Rufus did. And you see their humanity and you see why they made those choices and you still have to go, holy shit, why did you do that? It's a lot of, you got so close. Sometimes I want to reach back to the historical figures that I'm looking at and just shake them a little bit and be like, you're almost there. And then they take such a hard left turn, right? And I felt that a little bit with Rufus. There's so many points in this book where he's almost there. And you're like, yes, Rufus, you got it. And then he takes the hardest left turn and you're like, fuck Rufus, no. 
that's the most cruel thing that you could done. You're just playing into these power systems. And I think that one of the most things that I have most important things that I've taken from books like this and from my work as a historian is that people have always been people. We have always been the same. (laughs) That's why you find dick pics and notes about your boss in the marginalia of, I don't know, religious religious texts from the 1600s. People have always been people. But because of that, when you look back at history and you look back at the things that you don't like, you have to remember that we are just as capable and just as culpable of making those same decisions now. And I think that that's where so much of the discomfort lies. And that's the place where I try and live so much of my life and why I think that books like this are so important is because we all have the capacity to potentially be cruel. And it takes a lot of work to be making the best decision that you possibly can be in any given situation, in any given moment. And you're not always going to get it right because none of us are perfect. But living in that liminal space can be really difficult, but it's so worth it, I think. I don't know. That's my that's my TED talk on why I like being a historian. But I do think that it relates to this book and relates a little bit to what Harmony was saying. So hopefully that wasn't too much of a tangent. No, I think that that gave some much needed hope to my very much, I'm tired of living in white supremacy. <laughs> It's hard, I don't like it. (laughs) Yeah, liminal space is important. We can do it. We're all going to get there someday. (laughs) We're all going to get there someday. And someday in a hundred years, some historian is going to look at the weird things that we put on public bathroom walls and be like, ah, yes, this tells us so much about how people have always been people. This is true. But yes, honor, learn about history. Look at what your local government is doing. Even New York is trying, currently trying to pass a bill right now so that we cannot teach critical race theory in classrooms, which is a whole thing that will get me on a tangent. But anyway, (laughs) yeah, look at your local legislation. Fight for history to be taught in your classrooms. That's what I'm bringing with me out into the real world. And also, yeah, just remembering that power structures exist and trying to operate the best ways that I can within them and trying to remember that these power structures are largely anti-Black. So, yeah. All right. I think that that's all of the thoughts that I have. Harmony, do you have any more thoughts or do you want to tell us what you're reading? This is what I was reading. No, that's not true. I'm actually, I recently started When We Were Magic by Sarah Gailey. And longtime listeners may know that I love Sarah Gailey. Maggie is making big eyes, so I think they have thoughts on when we were magic. Maggie, what are your thoughts? I don't. I just also love Sarah Gailey. They write great books. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, so that's it. What about you? What are you reading? I am reading The First Binding by R.R. Vritti. I'm reading, what's it called? The Art of Prophecy by Wesley Chu. And I'm reading Don Quixote, which I will not be answering any questions about at this current moment. No! You can't do that to me! (laughs) For those that don't know, I have never read Don Quixote, but since Maggie has known me, have been a little bit obsessed with it, because... (laughs) Just, yeah, okay. That's it. That's it for now, folks. I think, I think... All right, bye, folks! Bye! Bye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. 
you can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website, rebelgirlsbook.club and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at RGBC pod on Instagram at rebel girls book club on Facebook at rebel girls book one on Twitter. And you can email us at rebel girls book club at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.